Chapter Three of the Alhambra: A Series of Tales and Sketches of the Moors and Spaniards by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three: Interior of the Alhambra. The Alhambra has been so often and so minutely described by travellers that a mere sketch will probably be sufficient for the reader to refresh his recollection. I will give, therefore, a brief account of our visit to it the morning after our arrival in Granada. Leaving our posada of La Espada, we traversed the renowned square of the Vivarambla, once the scene of Moorish jousts and tournaments, now a crowded market-place. From thence we proceeded along the Zacatin, the main street of what was the great bazaar in the time of the Moors, where the small shops and narrow alleys still retain their oriental character. Crossing an open place in front of the palace of the captain-general, we ascended a confined and winding street, the name of which reminded us of the chivalric days of Granada. It is called the Calia, or street of the Gomeres, from a Moorish family famous in chronicle and song. This street led up to a mansion gateway of Grecian architecture built by Charles V, forming the entrance to the domains of the Alhambra. At the gate were two or three ragged and superannuated soldiers dozing on a stone bench, the successors of the Zegris and the Abenceragas, while a tall, meagre varlet, whose rusty brown cloak was evidently intended to conceal the ragged state of his nether garments, was lounging in the sunshine and gossiping with an ancient sentinel on duty. He joined us as we entered the gate, and offered his services to show us the fortress. I have a traveller's dislike to officious Cicerone, and did not altogether like the garb of the applicant. You are well acquainted with the place, I presume? Ninguno mas, pues se fior soyo de la Hambra. Uh, nobody better. In fact, sir, I am a son of the Alhambra. The common Spaniards have certainly a most poetical way of expressing themselves. A son of the Alhambra. The appellation caught me at once. The very tattered garb of my new acquaintance assumed a dignity in my eyes. It was emblematic of the features of the place, and became the progeny of a ruin. I put some further questions to him, and found his title was legitimate. His family had lived in the fortress from generation to generation, ever since the time of the conquest. His name was Mateo Ximenes. Then, perhaps, said I, you may be a descendant from the great Cardinal Ximenes. Dio Saba! God knows, Signor, it may be so. We are the oldest family in the Alhambra, the Ejos Christianos, old Christians, without any taint of Moor or Jew. I know we belong to some great family or other, but I forget who. My father knows all about it. He has the coat of arms hanging up in his cottage up in the fortress. There is never a Spaniard, however poor, but has some claim to high pedigree. The first title of this ragged worthy, however, had completely captivated me, so I gladly accepted the services of 
the son of the alhambra we now found ourselves in a deep narrow ravine filled with beautiful groves with a steep avenue and various footpaths winding through it bordered with stone seats and ornamented with fountains to our left we beheld the towers of the alhambra beetling above us to our right on the opposite side of the ravine we were equally dominated by rival towers on a rocky eminence these we were told were the torres vermejos or vermilion towers so called from their ruddy hue no one knows their origin they are of a date much anterior to the alhambra some suppose them to have been built by the romans others by some wandering colony of phoenicians ascending the steep and shady avenue we arrived at the foot of a huge square moorish tower forming a kind of barbican through which passed the main entrance to the fortress within the barbican was another group of veteran invalids one mounting guard at the portal while the rest wrapped in their tattered cloaks slept on the stone benches this portal is called the gate of justice from the tribunal held within its porch during the moslem domination for the immediate trial of petty causes a custom common to the oriental nations and occasionally alluded to in the sacred scriptures the great vestibule or porch of the gate is formed by an immense arabian arch of the horseshoe form which springs to half the height of the tower on the keystone of this arch is graven a gigantic hand within the vestibule on the keystone of the portal is engraven in like manner a gigantic key those who pretend to some knowledge of mahometan symbols affirm that the hand is the emblem of doctrine and the key of faith the latter they add was emblazoned on the standard of the moslems when they subdued andalusia in opposition to the christian emblem of the cross a different explanation however was given by the legitimate son of the alhambra and one more in unison with the notions of the common people who attach something of mystery and magic to everything moorish and have all kinds of superstitions connected with this old moslem fortress according to mateo it was a tradition handed down from the oldest inhabitants and which he had from his father and grandfather that the hand and key were magical devices on which the fate of the alhambra depended the moorish king who built it was a great magician and as some believed had sold himself to the devil and had laid the whole fortress under a magic spell by this means it had remained standing for several hundred years in defiance of storms and earthquakes while almost all the other buildings of the moors had fallen to ruin and disappeared the spell the tradition went on to say would last until the hand on the outer arch should reach down and grasp the key when the whole pile would tumble to pieces and all the treasures buried beneath it by the moors would be revealed notwithstanding this ominous prediction we ventured to pass through the spellbound gateway feeling some little assurance against magic art in the protection of the virgin a statue of whom we observed above the portal
After passing through the barbican, we ascended a narrow lane winding between walls, and came on an open esplanade within the fortress called the Plaza de los Aljibes, or Place of the Cisterns, from great reservoirs which undermine it, cut in the living rock by the moors for the supply of the fortress. Here also is a well of immense depth furnishing the purest and coldest of water, another monument of the delicate taste of the Moors, who were indefatigable in their exertions to obtain that element in its crystal purity. In front of this esplanade is the splendid pile commenced by Charles V, intended, it is said, to eclipse the residence of the Moslem kings. With all its grandeur and architectural merit, it appeared to us like an arrogant intrusion, and passing by it, we entered a simple, unostentatious portal opening into the interior of the Moorish palace. The transition was almost magical. It seemed as if we were at once transported into other times and another realm, and were treading the scenes of Arabian story. We found ourselves in a great courtyard, paved with white marble, and decorated at each end with light Moorish peristyles. It is called the Court of the Alberca. In the center was an immense basin or fish-pool, a hundred and thirty feet in length by thirty in breadth, stocked with goldfish and bordered by hedges of roses. At the upper end of this court rose the great tower of Comares. From the lower end we passed through a Moorish archway into the renowned Court of Lions. There is no part of the edifice that gives us a more complete idea of its original beauty and magnificence than this, for none has suffered so little from the ravages of time. In the center stands the fountain famous in song and story. The alabaster basins still shed their diamond drops, and the twelve lions which support them cast forth their crystal streams as in the days of Boabdil. The court is laid out in flower-beds, and surrounded by light Arabian arcades of open filigree work, supported by slender pillars of white marble. The architecture, like that of all the other parts of the palace, is characterized by elegance, rather than grandeur, bespeaking a delicate and graceful taste, and a disposition to indolent enjoyment. When we look upon the fairy tracery of the peristyles, and the apparently fragile fretwork of the walls, it is difficult to believe that so much has survived the wear and tear of centuries, the shocks of earthquakes, the violence of war, and the quiet, though no less baneful, pilferings of the tasteful traveller. It is almost sufficient to excuse the popular tradition that the whole is protected by a magic charm. On one side of the court, a portal richly adorned opens into a lofty hall paved with white marble and called the Hall of the Two Sisters. A cupola, or lantern, admits a tempered light from above and a free circulation of air. The lower part of the walls is encrusted with beautiful Moorish tiles, on some of which are emblazoned the escutcheons of the Moorish monarchs. 
The upper part is faced with the fine stucco work invented at Damascus, consisting of large plates cast in moulds, and artfully joined so as to have the appearance of having been laboriously sculptured by the hand into light relievos and fanciful arabesques, intermingled with texts of the Koran and poetical inscriptions in Arabian and Celtic characters. These decorations of the walls and cupolas are richly gilded, and the interstices panelled with lapis lazuli and other brilliant and enduring colours. On each side of the wall are recesses for ottomans and arches. Above an inner porch is a balcony which communicated with the women's apartment. The latticed balconies still remain, from whence the dark-eyed beauties of the harem might gaze unseen upon the entertainments of the hall below. It is impossible to contemplate this once favorite abode of Oriental manners without feeling the early associations of Arabian romance, and almost expecting to see the white arm of some mysterious princess beckoning from the balcony, or some dark eye sparkling through the lattice. The abode of beauty is here, as if it had been inhabited but yesterday. But where are the Zoriadas and Linderahas? On the opposite side of the Court of Lions is the hall of the Abensarahas, so called from the gallant cavaliers of that illustrious line, who were here perfidiously massacred. There are some who doubt the whole truth of this story, but our humble attendant, Mateo, pointed out the very wicket of the portal through which they were said to have been introduced one by one, and the white marble fountain in the centre of the hall where they were beheaded. He showed us also certain broad ruddy stains in the pavement, traces of their blood, which, according to popular belief, can never be effaced. Finding, we listened to him with easy faith, he added that there was often heard at night, in the court of the lions, a low, confused sound resembling the murmurings of a multitude, with now and then a faint tinkling like the distant clank of chains. These noises are probably produced by the bubbling currents and tinkling falls of water, conducted under the pavement through the pipes and channels to supply the fountains. But according to the legend of the son of the Alhambra, they are made by the spirits of the murdered Abenseragas, who nightly haunt the scene of their suffering, and invoke the vengeance of heaven on their destroyer. From the court of lions we retraced our steps through the court of the alberca, or great fish-pool, crossing which we proceeded to the Tower of Comares, so called from the name of the Arabian architect. It is of massive strength and lofty height, domineering over the rest of the edifice and overhanging the steep hillside which descends abruptly to the banks of the Daro. A Moorish archway admitted us into a vast and lofty hall which occupies the interior of the tower and was the grand audience-chamber of the Moslem monarchs, thence called the Hall of Ambassadors. It still bears the traces of past magnificence. The walls are richly stuccoed and decorated with arabesques, the vaulted ceilings of cedar-wood 
almost lost in obscurity from its height, still gleam with rich gilding and the brilliant tints of the Arabian pencil. On three sides of the saloon are deep windows, cut through the immense thickness of the walls, the balconies of which look down upon the verdant valley of the Daro, the streets and convents of the Abahin, and command a prospect of the distant Vega. I might go on to describe the other delightful apartments of this side of the palace. The tocador, or toilet, of the queen, an open belvedere on the summit of the tower, where the Moorish sultanas enjoyed the pure breezes from the mountain and the prospect of the surrounding paradise. The secluded little patio, or garden of Landaraja, with its alabaster fountain, its thickets of roses and myrtles, of citrons and oranges. The cool halls and grottoes of the baths, where the glare and heat of day are tempered into a self-mysterious light and a pervading freshness. But I appear to dwell minutely on these scenes. My object is merely to give the reader a general introduction into an abode where, if disposed, he may linger and loiter with me through the remainder of this work, gradually becoming familiar with all its beauties. An abundant supply of water, brought from the mountains by old Moorish aqueducts, circulates throughout the palace, supplying its baths and fish-pools, sparkling in jets within its halls, or murmuring in channels along the marble pavements. When it has paid its tribute to the royal pile, and visited its gardens and pastures, it flows down the long avenue leading to the city, tinkling in rills, gushing in fountains, and maintaining a perpetual verdure in those groves that embower and beautify the whole hill of the Alhambra. Those only who have sojourned in the ardent climates of the south can appreciate the delights of an abode combining the breezy coolness of the mountain with the freshness and verdure of the valley. While the city below pants with the noontide heat, and the parched vega trembles to the eye, the delicate airs from the Sierra Nevada play through the lofty halls, bringing with them the sweetness of the surrounding gardens. Everything invites to that indolent repose the bliss of southern climes. And while the half-shut eye looks out from shaded balconies upon the glittering landscape, the ear is lulled by the rustling of groves and the murmur of running streams. End of chapter 3